This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Today is July 15th. My name is John Dunn. Welcome. This is the Best Friends Podcast. I'd like to thank you for subscribing and sharing, rating and reviewing the podcast. And whether this is the first episode you've ever listened to or the 70th, I want to make sure you don't sleep on the website. It's an important part of the podcast because that's where you will find all of the resources from the episode. If we talk about a life-saving program, you will find information on how to do that program where you live bestfriends.org slash podcast. You can also see the bio photos of the guests for that week. It's a very easy to remember URL, but even better, just go ahead and make it the homepage of your browser, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Now, over the last year and a half on this program, we've taken a look at how some communities are approaching life-saving, what they do and how they're doing it. What can we learn from them? Today, we're going to look at one Texas community, El Paso, and as you will hear, they have come a very long way in the last few years. But you know, it's not 2011 anymore. There are a lot of communities that have come a long way in the last few years. But there are some unique things about El Paso and the approach they've taken to truly partner with the community. People were looking at the folks who loved our animals in El Paso like they were crazy. And I said, you know what? They're not crazy. And if they are, that's okay. They're crazy for these animals. And maybe we need to get a little crazy for these animals. Maybe we need to think a little crazy as well and, and love these animals as much as, as, as they love them. That's the city manager of El Paso, Tommy Gonzalez. Everything we do, everything that I push our folks to do, it, it better have a result. Tell them if it doesn't have a result, why are you doing it? If it's not in the strategic plan, why the heck are you doing it? This is the first time we've ever had a city manager on the podcast, and I think you'll like his style. He certainly made me think about things in a different way. And when it comes to understanding how to make the case to leadership for life-saving programs, if you're a municipal employee or with a rescue organization advocate, it doesn't matter. If you need to make the case to someone, who better to ask for advice on how to do that than the top boss in the 21st largest city in America? But up first is Ramon Herrera. He's the animal shelter director in El Paso. I wanted to learn from him more of the historical perspective, where they came from, what they're doing today, and not only how they made the changes, but how they've made them stick. Ramon, if I have done my homework correctly, you have been with the city for a while, I think, right? Maybe about a decade, uh, but not always in animal services. So just give me a quick background. Who is Ramon Herrera? Yeah, I've been with the city of El Paso for short of 10 years. I started my career in the communications and public affairs office. The good thing about that is I was essentially able to work with just about every department in the city. Made my way to animal services, doing some of the the PR and communication, and then really pursued uh, animal welfare, my certification in shelter management, and then took on some other management roles besides, you know, media and marketing. That's what's great been about our organization is that they realize, um, you know, when there's people that want to do more, they allow you to do more. I think that's why we've been successful in El Paso um, because they really support, you know, the education, continuing education factor, and also, you know, putting people where they want to be and where they can excel. And I'm very fortunate to be where I'm at now. Getting to where you are now, uh, not easy, never is, is it? Uh, But I think helpful to understand what El Paso was like for animals prior to that reform process? What was it like back then? Definitely. I I think when I started, animal services was one of those departments where um, I hate to say it, that, um, you know, employees are are kept there and not thought about oftentimes just to kind of do the quote unquote essential work. You know, in 2012, 2013, had a save rate of about 25%. Our shelter was always the place where, as you can imagine, you know, a lot of shelters were in the past where the community would say, oh my God, no, they're at the shelter. You got to go now. They're going to euthanize them right away or don't take your pets to the shelter. Or, you know, it, it very much was quote unquote, the pound as, as we all hate that word. And the community of some individuals, longtime residents here in El Paso knew the history of the shelter and said, you know what? You got places like Austin because we're in Texas. If they can do it, of a city of that size, you got places like Tucson and Pima Animal Care Center that are improving. Why can't that happen here in El Paso? 
So it really became a group of local residents that started going to uh, public comment at city council and bringing those facts to light in a place and a setting that possibly made a lot of the leadership uncomfortable saying, you know, this is how many animals died last calendar year, thousands, you know, 24,000 animals died in El Paso, just in the shelter. Um, this is what, you know, other communities are able to do. Why can't we do that? Us as taxpayers want that. And again, we were fortunate that our city manager really, and our city council took those comments to heart and said, you know what? Okay, you know, we can do better. And that's where the formulation of a, a task force came together, the middle of 2015, with the deadline to come back with a report January 2016 with best practices, how we could fund it, what it would require staffing, you name it. That report was presented to city council in January of 2016. Um, part of that process included that team going to these facilities, talking to these leaders in other cities and shelters organizations, holding community meetings as uncomfortable as those can be at times, letting uh, the public know what our intent was, but also getting that input from the public as well, um, the rescue community. So essentially every stakeholder involved had a part in it. And then during that presentation, it was not just, this is what we found, this is what we think we can do. This is the dollar amount and the commitment that it's gonna take to get it done. That was approved unanimously. That included ordinance changes off the bat to make community cat program legal in El Paso because our current ordinance uh, wouldn't allow for it. And the ball was rolling just about every month after January, we were in city council, either designating some funding, transferring some budget uh, funds, changing some ordinances and celebrating some wins like uh, having our first, you know, ever major adoption event that, you know, now is small in comparison to what we host, but back then was big and started to the, the recruitment of staff. We had probably the best, uh, you know, budget folks around in the whole city department, um, the best HR folks. Really, that was a, a, a recommitment to continue to improve El Paso. And from there, we just continued the momentum and we started looking at ways that we can provide new programming um, to not only our city, but um, now is being copied as a best practice across the nation. For example, we were the first uh, city to put microchip scanners in fire stations. And that came from an idea in our team meeting where the fire chief said, you, you know what's open 24 hours? My fire stations. There's always someone there, you know, vet offices close, but 24 seven, someone's gonna be at the fire station. So if someone finds a lost pet and is willing to help us out, you know, that's something we can do. Um, so really it, the, the process has seemed for a lot of us that have been at animal services as one that seems like it just happened yesterday, but it's definitely years of hard work ever since that 2015, 2016 period. And even as we got through, um, the pandemic and I say getting through, but readjusting post pandemic, um, that was a big change for our staff as well as, as a lot of shelters are adjusting nationwide, um, adding programs to better serve the needs of the community following the pandemic. Um, and I'm just very fortunate that I'm part of an organization that I did, I know it would only be possible because our, our leadership from the top to the bottom support what we do. You mentioned the microchip scanners at the firehouses. I mean, talk about leveraging resources. Just again, it's that little, little thing. Hey, that's a good idea. Yeah, it's a really great idea. Um, but you know, we should mention the fire department, your relationship there does not end with scanners. The org chart changed the structure of the the city, you're actually under the fire department, which, yeah, you know, unless, I mean, I'm not a municipal sheltering historian or anything, but I got to think that's pretty rare. Maybe even the first time I've heard it, but then you start to hear the why and the advantages that you get from that. Man, does that make sense? I looked at it back when we were, um, you know, formed this uh, realignment and this new task force back in 2017. And I believe there was only one more, one other city or county uh, entity that uh, reported up to the fire department. You know, there are many, many others that report up to the police department. Um, but, you know, we understood it sounded very awkward to, to report up to the fire department. But when you're talking about your vet services, your medical services, fire departments provide that through the ambulance side. When you're talking about engaging the community. That is something, uh, you know, fire departments across the country are very heavy on. When you're talking about policies and procedures and getting your staff trained and getting your staff to believe in a mission, 
uh, it all starts to make sense why um, being aligned with a fire department um, really is a benefit to an animal shelter like us and even the resources. Um, perfect example is I had to set up some emergency housing a few weeks ago and you know, that included tents, that included, you know, extra PPE, that included some portable ACs to set up some temporary housing for a few days. Well, who had those those uh, supplies was our, our partners at the fire department and quickly got those to us. Um, you know, we they are very much have their own uh, facility staff whenever a uh, facility need occurs and they jump on in. Um, we've had the fire department help us retrofit some outdoor kennels to improve uh, the comfort, adding some shade over that. Um, that would all be a big process in municipal government, trying to get an outside contractor and all that. And we're able to get that done because we have that connection through the fire department. So you have community cats and adoptable dogs and cats at every fire station, right? <laughs> Not yet. We definitely are, are, are getting up to that. At least, uh, you know, the firefighters, I think, have uh, definitely embraced being connected to animal services. A lot of them have adopted through us. Um, we've done, uh, besides this past pandemic year, have done a partner uh, calendar, um, you know, firefighters and furry friends calendar um, that really, you know, provides us a way of cross-promoting and educating the community on, you know, pet adoption uh, and also um, fire services. So we always look for ways to partner. Uh, the microchip scanning is just one, but I'm sure we'll have uh, different ways to partner in the future. What, what programs specifically, if you kind of had to you know, say one or two, boil it down, you know, what were the things that you would say really changed things in a big way, really moved the the needle towards no kill? I think for us, you got to start off with foster. And it seems so basic because everyone has a foster program now. But, you know, for us, it's meant essentially having a shelter away from a shelter. Currently, my, my shelter capacity is about 650 currently, but I have about 600 out in foster right now. Um, that has allowed the community to be very much a big part, hands-on part of our life-saving mission. And it shows that the community, not just those few people that were at city council in 2015, are committed to saving the lives of pets. And by encouraging the community to be actively involved, to be hands-on with the pets, and also to provide them that, that home, that, that space that we just can't provide here, in those large numbers has been a big part of why we've been successful. That our foster program really didn't take off till that reform and specifically in 2017. And then has then uh, been able to be more focused on certain areas. So uh, what we call this year, we created a flight attendant foster program. So those animals that needed a week or two before their rescue flights go out and needed a place to isolate and decompress um, we started promoting that, asking folks, you know, this, you know, we usually ask you to foster a pet two weeks to two months, depending on their needs. This flight attendant foster program, you can be part of our rescue transports, and it's really just a week or two. Um, so that foster program has really just helped us out and fostering in general. Um, another big program has basically been um, one that we created recently called our Resource Rovers, very much young. But what it is, it's going to our new mindset of sheltering, of basically providing services directly to the community so they don't have to potentially rely on the shelter system. So that is two employees that we have out there that are connecting with folks that may just need some food su supplies to, to make it through the month so they can hang on to their pet. Um, our animal protection officers let their resource rovers know, you know, I was just at this house. They're great people great owners. They just have a fencing issue. Um, do you think you could go out there and see how we can assist? We'll do that. Provide, um, you know, dog houses for someone that, um, you know, just needs a little bit of help. Um, we, they also lead all of our mass vaccination clinics and microchip clinics. And their goal that I gave them is as you drive around and they really are roaming around in the community. If you see someone walking their dog, Hey, how's it going? Cute pup. By any chance, uh, does it is your pup microchip? Would you like a free microchip? Microchip everything you see, um, and communicate with the public, uh, engage with the public, and another facet of that uh, resource rover program, very much connected to our foster program, is with so many animals out in foster. Of course, the needs for 
updated vaccinations is there. And I had a, a foster reach out to me and said, you know what, I, I love fostering for you all. I have nine kittens and a mama at home and it's a headache to get them all in the car, get them to the shelter for their vaccines. Is there any way you can help me out? So one of the, the roles the Resource Rovers play is to can go visit those fosters in their home to ensure those vaccinations are done um, and really provide that better service to the community so we could retain those foster parents for many years to come. Um, I think another key part has just been our, our, uh, our marketing efforts as well. As you can imagine, as mentioned, um, you know, and I, and I say that a little bit biased because I was the marketing and public engagement manager prior to that, but very much I was here when the community animal services was a bad word. It was taboo. You didn't want to be there. And one of the first tasks that, that we realized was that we need to tell our story. We need to bring the public on our journey to improve and, and to save lives. And we need to let them know how they can be part of that. So our marketing efforts that have been very steady since that 2016 date and the staff and leadership now leading those marketing efforts very much believe that we have to tell our story. We can't let others tell our story for us. And we got to let the public know how they play a role. And, you know, the, a lot of challenges during the pandemic, but a lot of opportunities came by connecting with folks, you know, through that social media, through those virtual avenues in order to engage, uh, maintain that engagement since quote unquote, the doors to the facility um, were closed, but we were still doing curbside services. We still had to find a way to have the public be involved in our life-saving and continue to be in our life-saving. And I think those areas combined, and I hate just choosing three because a lot of policy improvements have taken place that have allowed us to sustain life-saving. Um, you know, our field officers are just amazing, really embraced transition from the culture of, you know, they would pride themselves on coming to the shelter with a truckload of dogs. Now they pride themselves on the number of RTOs in the field they do. And, you know, that culture change has been just amazing. I mean, so much hard work, of course. And um, we're very excited to see where where our journey continues. That's not all roses, though, is it? Definitely not all roses. Uh, you know, I know there have been some struggles recently. Uh, and if you don't want to talk about it, of course, you don't have to. I thought since you were on, I would ask you, uh, because it is part of the process of changing a community, of trying new things, delivering things in a different way. And sometimes the public doesn't understand it. They don't like it. Uh, and, and, but it's just sort of part of the, the process. I'll be very candid and honest. Um, right now, I got a, a portion of our population um, that doesn't seem to agree with us asking the community to help us reconnect lost pets with their owners in their neighborhood, meaning that they don't immediately enter the shelter that we ask the folks, get us, get that PET scan for a microchip, share that information with us. Let's get their photo on our website for anyone looking for their pet, but help us by hanging on to that pet a day or two, posting flyers in your neighborhood on social media to see if we could get that pet home in the shelter before ever, or get that pet back home before ever needing the shelter. And, um, you know, I, I, I very much, when I have to talk with my leadership about these concerns, explain that animal welfare is always going to evolve and we're always going to find ways of doing things better, not because it means less staff time, not because it means they don't come in the shelter, but it, our goal is to save more lives, is to keep pets and families together. And if that's the mission and that's our goal, then we got to do everything we can to give those pets a chance at staying with their family. And that first chance is to try to find their family in their neighborhood. And I give the analogy all the time, and I said it in a recent media interview that asked me about our, our process when it comes to these friendly and healthy strays. Uh, and I give the analogy of, you know, me, I'm a parent now. If my child goes missing in a department store, I don't expect the store manager, if he finds my child, to immediately take him out of the store, take him to the police department, and then file a found child report at the police department. I expect him to find the child and utilize some resources within the store to try to find me, the parent who's looking for their lost child. I use that analogy because we've seen through our data and not just here locally at various other shelters across the country that these lost pets are no more than a mile or two from their home. 
And there's going to be folks that are going to be looking for them that first day or two, especially. Um, and that's a new way of thinking. That's a new way of sheltering. And just as I explained even to my leadership that, you know, believe it or not, there was folks five, six years ago in our community that didn't believe in fostering, that didn't believe in an open adoption program. They believed it was okay to discriminate based on income levels. And as gross as that sounds now, that's essentially what we were doing five, six years ago in a lot of adoption, in a lot of our adoption practices. But we found better ways to do it in animal welfare. We, we found out that, you know, that boogeyman doesn't exist. And really it means that more lives are being saved. And that's my challenge I'm facing right now. Um, and, you know, I know the passion of those community members comes from a good place. Um, it may come, it, it may be seen through a different lens, um, but I always, I always am very honest. If it doesn't work for our community, if it doesn't work for our animals, most importantly, we're not going to do it in El Paso. And what we've seen already is that when we keep those friendly, healthy strays, those are the ones we keep. Anything that has any medical aggression, um, that's in immediate danger, those come in right away. Definitely what the shelter system's made for. But our RTO rate jumps from 16 to 17% to 38% by just keeping those friendly uh, animals in their neighborhood a day or two. And that's kind of the way that, again, going back to, to come full circle to what our organization um, is citywide is finding a better way to do things, finding better ways to truly meet your mission. And our mission here is to be an animal welfare leader in El Paso and beyond. And um, very challenging. I definitely told my wife when I took this job, um, my name's going to be out there and there's going to be stuff said about me. Um, so I need you not to read the stuff on social media. <laughs> One really overlooked aspect in conversations like this, in my opinion, is the change management piece. I mean, we can create reports and task forces and whatever else you want, but unless you have the structure and the culture to make that change and make it stick, the progress isn't going to last. It may not even happen, but certainly won't last. So tell me about the change management aspect and how, you know, how you've created a culture that helps you move forward and do the things that you've done. I think communicating has been the key part about that. You know, the, the public came and communicated to the city what their needs and wants were. And the city then communicated back and we heard you. We've done our research. There is a cost to it. And there is a commitment. We've always said that life-saving and improving the shelter is a community-wide effort. Um, and even I, that stuff that I repeat now that we were saying back in 2015, when those community members are basically um, trying to say that the shelter is responsible for any and every pet, when actuality, the shelter and the community are responsible for our community pets. So I think for the one thing, if, if I could, you know, provide anything to anyone listening to this podcast is that you want to communicate across the board, whether that's within your own city, municipal or county organization, and then beyond, because I know there's a lot of shelters that, you know, function just in their department, in their silo. And I think the first step for success for El Paso was that that communication was taking place across the department organization. If you ask anyone in our solid waste, um, department what animal services goal is, they're going to say 90% live release rate. If you ask someone in our HR department at City Hall, they're going to repeat it. Why? Because we're communicating across our organization and we're communicating, of course, to the entire community. Some of those community members may not like what you're saying, but that's where, of course, the data and the consistent reporting out um, comes in. The transparency um, plays a big role in that. And, and stay strong. I think that's the biggest thing I say to all my animal welfare uh, colleagues. I always end every conversation with stay strong because the, the industry is tough. The job is tough, but we have to stay strong because, you know, things don't happen and change overnight. But, you know, our story here in El Paso, even though it feels like it was just yesterday, it's six plus years of hard work. And it's many more years of hard work um, beyond, you know, myself and the city manager um, we want to set up our our department and our life-saving journey to sustain itself for years to come. And I think just con continuing, continuing to communicate across the board is going to be the first step to that. I love that 
Ramon, stay strong together. It's a community created problem and it takes a community to solve it. Everyone, all of us, right. To fix it sustainably. No, definitely. I, I think, um, you know, we understand that everyone's going to have a different way of viewing, um, a process, a way of proceeding. It happens in every industry. We got to realize though, that in order to make meaningful change, we all got to work together. And that, that definitely goes back to when we were talking about our rebranding that became our tagline. Our first word in our tagline is together. Together, we will save more lives. City manager might not be the coolest title you'll ever hear. Sorry, Tommy. But in this country, in the council manager form of municipal government, it's the highest you can get in the org chart, the CEO. And as is the case with any organization, strong leadership matters. And as I think you'll hear, El Paso certainly has a strong leader in Tommy Gonzalez. Tommy, I don't know much about El Paso, be honest with you. I mean, I know it's in Texas. <laughs> I know it's a big community, much bigger than I thought it was. Um, but yeah, tell me tell me a little bit about El Paso. Well, it's over 700,000 people. I mean, the, the new census hasn't been completed yet, but the last one had it close to 700. So I'm going to say it's over 700,000 people. A lot of a lot of folks don't know this, but it's the 21st largest city in the United States. It's as big as Denver in terms of population. As far as the square miles, it's 273 square miles. So going from one end to the other takes quite a long time. I mean, with, with traffic, it could be a good hour and a half. Uh, it has, uh, it's the only city that uh, has, you know, bordered with, you know, two nations, three states. It's very regional in, na in nature in terms of when you look at it from the standpoint of what uh, helps it survive. Um, the other thing I would say is that, you know, we have a very large uh, bilingual population as well as a lot of folks don't know this, but we have a very young population as well. So uh, in terms of workforce and being able to uh, be, you know, sort of supply the workforce necessary for businesses we're trying to attract, we're, uh, we have a lot of, of people that are willing and able to work in this environment, given the fact that we have such a young population. What about you? What's your background? How did you even get into this? Uh, I'm a retired colonel. Uh, I've been doing uh, city government now for a while. This is the fifth city I've managed in. Um, when I got back from Desert Shield, Desert Storm, I was asked by a city secretary at the time, who was the wife of one of my coaches in high school. And even from high school, she'd always look at me and say, you'd make a great city manager. I didn't know what a city manager was, quite frankly. And whenever I got back from Desert Shield, Desert Storm, I was going to get out of the uh, military because I was on active duty and I was deploying all the time. And my wife was kind of tired of me deploying all the time. And you have to understand that I had just gotten back from the desert carrying 80, 90 pounds on my back. And, you know, it was hot. And, you know, you know the environment that you're in in terms of what we were there to do. So then I thought, you know, it'd be pretty easy to sit in an air conditioned office because the guy had a white shirt and a tie. and I, I just thought, hey, I'd like to do what he does. It looks pretty easy. Uh, little did I know that you know being a city manager is not very easy. It's very difficult and very challenging. And all my years in the military, I think, prepared me uh, for what I deal with on a daily basis with regard to uh, being a city manager. Because you can deal from anything from emergency disasters, uh, which you know in the military we have a lot of experience in that, uh, to leading people uh, into battle, if you will but in a different kind of battle, you know, a, a battle of words, a battle of how well you can present something, how well you can articulate a point and get others to follow along. So let's talk about El Paso Animal Services. Things were not always as they are today. Uh, can you take me back to, to the beginning of that reform process uh, and talk to me about the genesis of it? In around 2015, I was asked to put something together for animal services. And I think the kill rate there was at 23%, if I'm not mistaken. So that meant that, do the math, 77% of the animals were put down, which is, an, you know, atrocious. The one thing I will say is that, you know, I love animals. I do. I love dogs. Uh, like, and, and I love, you know, I love all animals, but I mean, I have a, you know, I just love dogs. And, and I remember whenever I was little, I would talk to my dog and you know, he wouldn't talk back. You know, he always loved on you, regardless of what kind of day you had. And, you know, I had a tough childhood when I was little. So dogs and cats, uh, but dogs in particular mean a lot to me. But I love all animals, like I said. So anyway, I think you have to have a love for these animals first. 
Um, and so um, whenever we were asked to put a plan together, what we did is we took a lot of what we did in Irving and did it here. Because whenever I was in Irving, we had a similar situation. And we went to San Diego. We went to all these other places and see how, saw how they were doing it. And we built a, a new facility. We built a dog park next to it. Two, two of them, one for big ones, one for little dogs. I mean, I called it the Taj Mahal of animal shelters. It was, it was gorgeous. The bottom line was people were looking at the folks who loved our animals in El Paso like they were crazy. And I said, you know what? They're not crazy. And if they are, that, it's okay. They're crazy for these animals. And maybe we need to get a little crazy for these animals. Maybe we need to think a little crazy as well and, and love these animals as much as, as, as they love them. So early on, we had, I mean, gosh, there was letters to the editors basically calling me stupid and just all kinds of things. And that's because they had their idea of what the plan needed to look like. And they had been told things in the past and it never had come to fruition. And so I took all that criticism. We took all that criticism, but we just kept on, kept doing what we were doing. The, the biggest change we made though, because one thing you can put a template in place and you can increase those numbers very, very quickly. And we did, we went like from 23 to 55%. We like the major jump because there were just simple things that we weren't doing. And then, you know, if I share it, you'll be like, well, everybody's doing that. And you're right, everybody was doing it. But the biggest change was whenever, you know, we were getting criticized the most in the paper. And then I looked at the shelter, our parvo disease was high. You know, our, our animals were being uh, given to the wrong people. They were, they were being put in different kennels and then put down accidentally. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, that's like murdering somebody, you know? I mean, I know it's an animal, but you still, I mean, that, that dog can't, can't talk. And so we need to talk for them. And you need to be that kind of, you got to have that kind of passion and be that upset that an animal got put down accidentally. So I just said enough's enough. And so we made a change in terms of who we're going to hire. I hired Paula Powell. I always had a lot of confidence in her because when I first worked in El Paso, when I first started working here, she was the assistant director for, for parks. And I remember asking her something and she, uh, no, she actually called me and she asked for my advice. And it had to do with, she was dealing with uh, a lot of uh, um, baseball parents or football parents. I forget what it was. And then I, I told her, I said, well, why don't you just have a meeting with them, get their input. And then from that, put something together. She goes, well, sir, that's not how we've been doing it. And that's not what she was told to do. She was told to do something. I said, I don't care what you've been told. That's what you're going to do. So she did it I mean, and she did an amazing job. And by virtue of having her there and having her report to the fire department, the fire department, they're experts at medical protocol. And we were having medicines that were like disappearing. Yes, people were stealing them. And yes, we had a lot of parvo disease. And so I thought, who else but, but the fire department who has a mobile hospital through all these ambulances they deal with and know about protocol and their paramilitary kind of thinking and again, everybody was criticizing that, you know, he's crazy. He didn't know what he's doing. And I, and I thought, yeah, we know what we're doing. That's who we need. So they closed the, the shelter. They cleaned up the shelter. There was no more parvo after the fire department and Paula got a hold of it. And then there was medical protocols up the yin yang. So there was no more medicines that were missing. Then all of a sudden the numbers just kept doing this, kept going up and up and up. And so what, what I kept preaching is that, look, this is the template from Irving, but Look at the best practices. And if, and if it's not a best, best practice, but you want to do it, maybe we'll be the best practice. Maybe we'll be the ones that are the standard bearer and such and such. And it was all based on input we were receiving from our community. And so that input we got from them, we put a plan together and we worked that plan. Let's talk about COVID because part of what put this episode of the podcast into motion was we were looking at how communities reacted to the shutdowns in 2020 and you know what happened in El Paso, what was the pandemic picture in your community? I know a lot of places in Texas were hit very hard. What about uh, El Paso? Well, you know, in 2018 of August, we got together with a bunch of organizations and we focused on two or three things. And one of them was Baldrige training, which was champion level training for Baldrige, which talked about strategic planning and workforce focus, customer focus, organizational focus, and results, and things of that nature. And we did that, and then we also talked about a community project, and then we also talked about, let's, let's work on a day of best practices amongst us 20 organizations. And the community project was working with kids in all the school districts. So we trained 400 kids on the city's budget and had them present that to the city council. So that was a really, really big lift. And the reason I'm mentioning that, because that has a lot to do with your question, 
So when we had the immigration crisis take place in, I think, around 2018, we were already kind of working with each other. When we had the August 3rd hate crime happen, we were all working with each other. And whenever a Plano tried to cancel a game, we were able through just talking to the school district, YISD, and talking to others in the Dallas area. And being, being that I was an Irving City manager, I knew the Cowboys really well. I was asked to go reach out to them. And I'm not dropping names. It's just simply, I mean, I'm a poor kid from East Lubbock. So, you know, I'm, I, I would have never thought I'd, I'd know who the Dallas Cowboy executives are. But I, we made a phone call and they put the game back on at Frisco at the star. And so it was a great lesson for the kids. Right. But again, another great result. And so then when the COVID happened, we were already working with those 20 plus agencies. And uh, even though we were the most infected in the world uh, at one point in, in uh, the fall of 2020, the CDC and Rockefeller Foundation said that the El Paso was one of the one of the best, if not the best, rollout of the vaccine um, in the United States. And so we we reached the the goal of the federal government of, of being at seventy percent ahead of time. We we did that a month early, uh, so that that was uh, that allowed us to capture the All American City Award as well because that was part of our presentation that we were the most infected, and then we became one of the best, if not the best, rollout vaccines in the nation. So. Right now, we're very close to herd immunity in El Paso, one of the few, one of the only, the only Texas city uh, to be so close to herd immunity. And the other cities are these larger cities in the West Coast and East Coast. So we, uh, we feel like we did really well. And again, it was because we had a plan and we worked it. And it didn't matter what people said, because we were being heavily criticized. You know, how are y'all the most infected? Y'all not doing anything with compliance and blah, blah, blah. And so we just knew that if we just stuck to the plan and worked it and had faith in it, that it would, that we would get the results. I mean, you know, nationwide, we saw this incredible outpouring of support from the public, right, to clear the shelters, get pets into adoptive foster homes. Uh, you made a big change there, going to a managed intake model at the shelter and, you know, now able to see how well that's worked. You know, a lot of that really just seeing opportunity in the midst of the crisis, the silver linings, if you will. Can you talk about how you helped steer the ship through the last year and a half? Well, I would tell you that you know, early on and in, in, in the midst of everything, I was heavily involved. And I think that I have so much, I had so much confidence in Paula and, and Mario and, and Dion Mack, uh, Mario D'Agostino as the fire chief, that you know, I deferred to them on a lot of issues and they would just update me on things. With regard to COVID and what Paula told me and now what Ramon is telling me, Ramon Herrera, is that you know they they did pick up on a lot of best practices, community sheltering and things of that nature, and, and I went with it. You know, I I trusted them, and I said, yeah, okay, let's let's do that. I mean, if it's an issue, every time there was an issue, there was a complaint. They they would not only explain it to me, but explain it to the council, and you know, their explanation made a lot of sense. You know, it's that you know we're doing community sheltering because of number one, people are indoors and they're at home. And so it makes a lot of sense to do community sheltering. And they, they weren't abandoning their post and not doing their work by any stretch of the imagination. So I think to your point, I mean, yeah, you learn from things like that. Like, for example, what we're doing now, you know, a lot of things that are virtual that we wouldn't have done before now become second nature. So some of the things that were done during COVID for, for pets, uh, for those animals that don't have homes, I think we want to continue where it makes sense and where or maybe create hybrids. But right now, we're very committed to staying above the 85% and trying to get the 90 and trying to get above that line. The public, uh, people are very passionate about pets. Uh, Tommy, I don't know if you know this or not. Uh, you mean, you just don't often see hundreds of people turn out to a, a city council meeting because of the vast majority of city business. But that is what happens with animal issues, I think you know, dealing with the public, quote unquote, dealing with is something everyone doing this has to do, whether you are a municipal employee or not, we all have to deal with the public. And it's not always nice. It's not always well-meaning, well-intentioned, well-placed. So what is your approach? Uh, not just animal folks, but I mean, you know, when you're working with the public in your role of, of city manager, what is your approach? You know, I'm telling you just what I feel in my heart. Okay. I, when I tell you, I love Animals. I mean, we got, got, got three of them right there. You, know, you can see that little guy right there, and then you got the two big ones back there. You know, you you have to love the animal, and you have to like get inside what people are thinking. And to me, those folks that are called crazy, when I really listen to them, 
they just love talking. Maybe I'm a little crazy too, in that I, I, I do listen to the people that are called crazy. And I tell our folks, you know, maybe they're not as crazy as you think. And maybe if you listen to them, you'd understand exactly how they felt. And maybe you then can be the voice for that dog or for that cat who can't talk. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's just what I believe. And that's just how I think. People are people. There's bad people in the private sector and there's bad people in government as well. And as long as I've been running a city, I've always told our people, you know, you're as good as you're going to, as you want to be, as good as, as good as we make ourselves be. And so I think our organization runs better than a lot of organizations, including the private sector. We did a survey one time in, uh, in, in environmental services, which is, uh, you know, the, uh, the, gar- the people who pick up the garbage. And on the recycling, you know, the bins weren't being filled every week. So, you know, I kept pushing and pushing them to do surveys and listen to the customer. So they did a survey and the survey said that they didn't get filled every week. So would they be okay if they could fill, if they would pick it up every other week? That saved us $2.7 million. And if people were not upset, 87% said, yeah, pick them up every other week. So listening to the customer saves you money. Listens, listening to the customer gives you better service to the customer and gives the customer what they want. This is no different than what I described to you and what we did with animal services. We listened to the animal advocates. We listened to the animal services advisory committee, which before the city couldn't work with. When I say the city, I mean the staff. They would just say, well, they're crazy. Like, you know, you can't just dismiss an entire group and say they're crazy. Why don't you listen to them? Maybe you're crazy. Maybe you're the one that hasn't been listening and doing what they need to, to get done. So, I mean, I would tell you it's crazy to pick up recycling every week whenever it's not full. And you got the one carton in there. That's crazy. You know, I believe that if, if um, you put your best foot forward, you have a good plan, you have good processes, have good systems, and you get others to see it and see those quick wins, they start believing in it. They then start coming up with ideas on the, of their own and it, it becomes contagious. And that's what we've done. We've done a little bit of that in every department. And I, I can honestly tell you, I think every department has been truly transformed. And we have about 27 departments throughout the city and we provide over 200 services to the community. And my goal for them is to say, you know, to them, be a master of the information. I mean, they didn't know that we provided over 200 services. I say, that's a shame, you should know that. And then how many of those services are being done well? one of the ones that that Paula was in charge of was outdoor recreation permits. It used to take us 21 days to issue an outdoor rec permit and you had to talk to four different people. That's crazy. Now you can do it in 15 minutes on the internet. That's customer service. That's listening to the customer. So I would say the same thing when it comes to animal services. It's except that it it took on a, a different vibe for me because the animals can't speak for themselves. You know, in other services, people can speak for themselves. They have a lot to say. Like you said, you know, they'll show up in droves to talk to you about complaining about whatever it is they're going to complain about. Animals can't do that. So when someone comes to you with an idea, Tommy, and maybe a problem that needs to be fixed, whatever it is, you're a busy guy. And I imagine there are a lot of requests on a day-to-day basis, a lot of things put in front of you on your desk. I understand that not all city managers are the same, but in your position, what are the things you could counsel people on when it comes to making change and getting the ear of their community's leadership? What do city managers love to hear? What, what do they really respond to? I think for them to have their data, if they have the data that shows, look, best practice is X, why aren't we doing it? And let me tell you what the best practice is and how it's being done. Some people get offended by that. They don't want to be told how to do their job. But if you do it in a way where, you know, like people say, you catch more flies with honey than you do vinegar. Just present it in a, in a, in a way that's easily understandable and that's compelling. I always tell my staff, when you present something, compel them with the data. Compel them and then will it to happen. And I think that these animal advocate groups can do the same thing. And they've, a lot of them do a very good job with it already. They, they bring the data, they show what other cities are doing, how well it's being done. And they have, even though some people say, well, they're, they're just way over to this side or that side. I think they've acknowledged good work when it's done. I do. I think some of them are never satisfied, but hey, I'm never satisfied either. I mean, I always want to get better. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but some people kind of view them that way. So if you come up, like if I was with an animal advocate rights group, I'd say, look guys, let's get our data together. 
Let's compel them with this data where they, it's undeniable. They have to agree to it. And then let's show them how to get there. And then let's say, this is how we were going to help, help you get there. We want to be part of solving this problem because we know that maybe in the past, for whatever reason, it wasn't being solved. But now it's a new day and we need to work together to help these animals. So I think that would be a good pitch, a good way to go about doing it. And I think most city managers would listen to that. I think there, you know, there, there's some, there's, there's been some cities that I've been in um, and some cities that, that used to think that, you know, you've heard it and it's horrible to put a bullet in the head of animals, you know, and things like that. And, and they had no regard for animals. Uh, and, and, and what I pressure people with or with what I shame them with is saying the way you treat your animals is a very good indicator of that community's uh, passion, not only for animals, but for people and, 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 and just their compassion in general in terms of how they view things. Um, so that you can say, you know, a lot can be said about a community in terms of how they, they treat their animals. I'm with you on that 100%. And, you know, it makes me think of uh, a community, another Texas community, Austin, uh, you know, the mayor, Steve Adler, if you ask him the top five reasons to move to Austin or move your business to Austin, being a no-kill community, it's right up there. I mean, right up there with, you know, whatever tax rates or, you know, whatever other reasons they think that you're going to want to move there. They have such pride in it. It's a community source of pride for what they've been able to do for the animals there. So um, absolutely says a lot about a community. Now I need to ask you about budgets because the pandemic, the economy, I mean, everything's out of whack. I I'm still not sure if we know what the effects of all this is going to be on the economy, but I do know a lot of municipalities are cutting budgets, they're reforecasting, and it's hard to keep services at the same level when you don't have the same amount of money. So what do you see happening uh, in well, El Paso in terms you know, of that's the one area that we don't budget. want to necessarily compromise on. And I know that it's, it's continues to be a priority for us. And what the reason why we had a report to the fire department is to create a force multiplier. We're still finding money for the, for the uh, animal services department uh, so they can do and continue to do what they've been doing. And, and I would tell you that that's a challenge in most communities and that when you want to start cutting, you start cutting in areas like that, but what we have seen at, here in El Paso, what we keep pushing is that it's a public health issue. You know, that dealing with, with the animals and the care uh, of, of the animals, it's public health because, you know, they get rabies or, you know, you have rabbit animals. And so the, by putting it under the uh, public health mantra, uh, it helps to keep that funding in place. When we talk about innovation, Tommy, you know, Government, I think for a lot of people, right or wrong, you know, people aren't often thinking of government when they think of innovation, trying things, pilot projects. You know, we know, I mean, pilot projects are a great way for all of us, best friends or anyone else to try things. And is it actually working as we, we want it to? But you're working with taxpayer dollars. So you're trying this thing over here and maybe it flops and you're probably going to have some taxpayers who are saying, Tommy, what the hell are you doing? I mean, of course that wasn't going to work or, you know, but I mean, of course, if we're not trying new ways of doing things, obviously you never know if, if there is a better way. So how do you approach innovation? You know, what does a kind of pilot project process look like for you? Well, we don't just like pull something out of the air and say, let's go do this. I think that what I've told, what I, what I've told staff and I tell them this frequently is that anything that stands in the way of a result is the enemy. I said, including me. If, if I'm saying no to something, you need to call me out on it. If, if anything gets in the way of a result, it's the enemy. And so these different tools and these different pilot programs that have been presented to me anyway, and the way they presented it is that this is going to get our numbers higher. It's going to help us during this time frame. It's going to do this, going to do that. You know, you have to do a multitude of things. And that was one thing I kept pushing on them is that, look, you have to do things like you haven't done them before. I'll give you, I'll give you a case in point. One thing that they struggled with was, because it, it was like, it's too much money, is that uh, I wanted to use all the vet, veterinarians in, in El Paso, like we did in Irving, where we partnered with them and where we got them vaccinated and, and, and spayed and neutered. And so instead of having one vet or two vets or three vets at the shelter, now maybe we have 28. Yeah, but the cost is up here. I said, yeah, but the overhead and the, the, the turnover and all this other stuff that happens when you only have one or two vets and you're stressing them out, and you have them do everything when you have this, these agreements in place and you have these negotiated rates, 
Uh, and, and we may pay more than what they typically want us to pay. And then when I say they, I'm talking about our staff. And there's things that they haven't thought of like that before, right? Uh, that was the one that, that, that we still haven't gotten to where I wanted to be. But that's an area, that's a good example of, of me pushing for something that even my staff's like, well, you know, let's hold up on that. Uh, but but yeah, the way we do pilot programs or the way we do different things like that is it's based on who else is doing them, what results have they achieved before we're going to jump in and do it. There's some things we've done that, that others haven't, uh, and we do that based on the result that we think we're going to get. Again, that's based on the surveys that I asked that I told you about, um, and based on that data. And and, it, and you'd be surprised, it's, it, you know, data is a powerful thing. When you do the research and you do the analysis and you do the surveys and then you base your actions on that and you have a scientific survey, you know, we've been pretty successful, uh, not only in animal services, but in a lot of other departments with those kinds of uh, tools. I, I cannot thank you enough for your time, Tommy. Uh, is there anything else you want to mention that we didn't touch on? Yeah, I think what you're doing is a, is a very good thing uh, for, for the world. You know, having that that type of organization available to others really does help them kind of take shortcuts on finding best practices if they're willing to do it. There's some that aren't willing to do it and it's, it's not a priority for them. And, and I do think that the, the animal advocates uh, and, and, and them going to the right communities to help them become no kill or at least get on the journey is the right thing to do. So uh, I wanna thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciated visiting with you and enjoyed it. And um, I hope, you know, whoever's listening um, learned something from it. I hope I was able to share some things that might be helpful. And if it wasn't, I mean, I appreciate it just visiting with you. Well, we do know that pet issues uh, really are people issues. I, I wish we could have more municipalities see animal services as a people service, right? And, and not just have it relegated as not as important, not as vital than other services and have that attitude of, oh boy, here come those crazy animal people again. How can we placate them and, and get them to go away instead of really embracing the community, working together constructively, you know, as you have been and are still doing in El Paso. So listen, congrats on all of the success and uh, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Dr. Dunn. Enjoyed it. My colleagues here at Best Friends that help make this thing happen every week, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta, my name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.